Be seated. As we continue in our series on the Psalms of Ascents, the chief insight of our psalm today, which is Psalm 127, and I do want to invite you to open up in your Bibles to Psalm 127. The chief insight of this psalm is that the normal duties of life, building a home, and that word for house in verse 1 of Psalm 127 could either mean a structure or a family. So you could read it either way. Uh, watching over a city or ensuring a safe neighborhood. Daily work we see in verse 2 or raising a family in verses 3 through 5. That this nor- these normal duties are things that flow from and depend upon the generosity and blessing of God. We actually learned a few weeks ago in Psalm 124 that God is on our side. God is for us. And Psalm 127 gives us an invitation into leaning into this more and more in the ordinary and everyday activities of our lives. And as we do lean in, the psalm gives us a glimpse into this change that can take place in our lives from a posture or disposition of anxious fretting versus trusting assurance it makes me think actually of Isaiah 32 verse 15 which reads and the effect of righteousness will be peace and the result of righteousness quietness and trust forever so when we walk with God Isaiah is saying the result of that will be peace and quietness and trust And in many ways, this psalm is inviting us into those realities here in the Psalms of Ascents. I wonder as we begin this morning, which disposition describes your life more accurately? Anxious toil or trusting assurance? I know that we all struggle with our finitude. We struggle with the unknown in life. That's part of what it means to be human. But this psalm invites us into a posture of trusting the God of heaven and earth and into this place of trusting assurance that could define our lives. And as it does invite us, it shows us a bit of how to get there. So we're going to look at the five verses and see how the psalm invites us into this, what it teaches us. And then we're going to look at what it might look like if we were to take this invitation up and actually walk into it and see a few uh, attributes of this kind of life. So let's look at verses 1 and 2. Let's start there. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord keeps watch over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Those are such great words, by the way, those two verses. I might encourage everybody to memorize them because they're incredibly helpful and encouraging. And it's really hard to believe, actually, that these were words that were written thousands of years ago, isn't it? When we think before there was electricity, before there was the internet, before we had laptops and cell phones, and we could bring work everywhere that we go, these words were actually written down. They seem to accurately describe life for us today. We burn the candle at both ends, cheating sleep to do more and more of what we need to do in life. And despite the fact that the value of sleep is making a big recovery 
in our health conscious culture and we have all of the technology and gadgets to support it with Fitbits and sleep rings that give you detailed readings on your sleep and a readiness score when you wake up in the morning. I would still say that most of us still walk around for the most part fairly sleep deprived. And I'm not just talking about those of us who've brought a baby home from the hospital recently. While anxious or painful toil, and that word for anxious could be translated here as painful or pain, is not always the cause of our sleep deprivation. There are plenty of shows and sporting events that keep us up much past the time that we should be asleep. Um, the reality is, is that many of us stay up far too late or wake up far too early to get work done. Or perhaps we've been kept up at night because of the anxiety or worry that centers around something that we're facing in our lives. Or we're brought to, uh, we come to early in the morning at three or four o'clock because we can't stop thinking about something that's causing us stress. And so the only solution that we can come up with is get out of bed and turn on the work and try to wish it away. It's just a part of what we all know to be life. And what the psalmist says is that this kind of life of anxious toil is vain, verse two. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest. That word for, for, that's translated here, vain, could also be nothingness or emptiness. This kind of anxious toil, this way of life, this burning the candle at both ends is actually of no value. In that passage that we read out of Matthew 6, Jesus' great words on anxiety, he says, listen, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? You can't. He says, it's not useful, it doesn't produce anything, and you can't do this no matter how hard you worry or how hard you work. And so the anecdote in this psalm to this anxious labor, this vain way of life is quite simple. It is to trust, to trust the God who made heaven and earth and who holds this world in his hands. And it is to rest in his providential care for our lives. We see that in a couple of ways. And we'll look first at the key insight here in verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord keeps watch, watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. God's blessing, God's action, God's work is that which matters most. It matters much more than our own contribution. God's part is essential and necessary. Our part is important, yes. God often and most often chooses to work through leaky jars of clay like you and me, through our deliberation, our dedication, through our hard work, our strategizing, through our weighing of pros and cons, our decision-making. Yes, God even works through our mistakes that we make. But the work that God does in and through all of our work, and sometimes even outside of our work, is what matters most for all of us. Unless the Lord builds the house, unless the Lord watches over the city, this is what matters. If we were to work on our own and walk, keep watch on our own, then this is said to be vain or empty or nothingness. Let's switch over to 1 Corinthians 3 for a minute. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and he's trying to relativize the importance that the church in Corinth places on any particular leader in the church, because that was causing division. And this is what he writes. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then Paul writes, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. 
Yes, Paul says, we have different parts to play. Paul says, I planted. He was the first to be in Corinth to share the good news of the gospel with the church there, and they believed. But then 18 months later, he had to leave. And then Apollos shows up, this man who was eloquent and competent in the scriptures. We read about this in Acts chapter 18. And he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. Both had a part to play, but Paul is saying, look, what I did and what Apollos did, it doesn't really count for anything. What counts is what God did in this situation. Of course, he's exaggerating their work matters, but he's trying to make a point of relativizing their work in light of the primacy of God's work. I'm sure many of you have been to the beach this summer. If you haven't, I'm sure you might go. And one of the favorite beach activities that we had, especially with young kids, was to build a sandcastle or some kind of structure on the beach within reach of the waves, you know, as they would come in. And it was this constant contest. Could you build it before the next set of bigger waves would wash in? And not only did you build the structure, but most of you who have done this know that you'll dig a moat in front of the structure, right? To kind of catch the waters that's coming in and all around. And you do your best, but time and time again, it is an exercise in futility as the waves move in and crush what you're building. And I think that's a picture here of our work outside of God, that more and more things just come and wash it away. But that which lasts and remains is the work that God does. And acknowledging that ultimate accomplishment of God in the world in which we live, that God is primary, means that we understand that our labors have some kind of relative importance. It's secondary. And that relativization of our labor, which this verse 1 of the psalm encourages us to do is actually a way forward in coming into a proper and healthy life of faith because it causes us to see that we're secondary our workaholism and whether your primary sphere of work is at home which for some of you it is or at school which for some of you it is or in your office which for probably the majority of you it is workaholism in any of those contexts is it is at least due in part to the result of forgetting the relative nature of our efforts, of thinking of our efforts as ultimate or primary and not secondary. Understanding that God's work matters most keeps us from depending upon ourselves, from the self-reliance that is the lie at the heart of our anxious toil, because that's always the lie underneath. Unless the Lord builds the house, this is an invitation into trust even as we work and therefore to work appropriately and not let work get out of bounds. I think of Proverbs 21, verse 31, the last verse in Proverbs 21. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. We do work. We are called to work. The response to Psalm 127 about the primacy of God's work is not to be lazy or not to do work. That would be ungodly and not, the, not what Scripture teaches. We do work, but it's ultimately God's effort and God's provision that matters most, and that puts our efforts in their proper place. So the second insight is at the end of verse 2. For he gives to his beloved sleep. This could mean exactly what the ESV translates it to mean, but it could also equally mean, for he gives to his beloved in their sleep. And the point here, whether we take it the way it's written here or the other way, is that in either case, the basic idea, in the words of one commentator, is, quote, God ultimately provides what humans need without excessive striving. 
God ultimately provides what humans need without excessive striving. God's provision is what we rest in. Confidence in and trusting God's provision leads us to be able to rest, to put our work in its proper context and not to overwork. And this is scripture's constant claim for us. God, your father, knows what you need. That's what Jesus says in this passage in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. Look, the Gentiles look at, seek after all these things. But God, who so feeds the birds of the air, who so clothes the lilies of the field, that God, that, he's your father and he knows what you need. So don't fret. Don't commit yourself to anxious toil. The key expression here in verse 2 is, he gives. God gives. We serve a generous God. A God who loves to give his children good gifts. Understanding this at a heart level is the solution to our anxious toil or painful toil. The Lord gives and that's what enables us to put our heads on the pillows at night and rest. The Lord gives and it's this that our entire lives depend upon. It's the generosity of God who gives that enables us to properly relate to our work and to properly enjoy genuine rest and it says he gives to his beloved you might think well am i part of the beloved of god well i would say to you this that the one great beloved is god's one and only son and if you believe in him and trust your life to him you become part of god's family of the beloved his love and affection is set upon you in his son jesus and you can be assured that the promise of verse two he gives to his beloved sleep applies to you Paul has great confidence in this, in his epistle to the Philippians. And he writes in chapter 4, verse 19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. This kind of trust in God's abundant provision and generosity toward his children is what marks the life of faith. It's what enables us to have this kind of trusting assurance as we walk through life rather than anxious fretting and toil. Verses 3 through 5 then shift to another dimension of the Lord's giving around raising a family, the formation of a family. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Children are a heritage. The word there could be translated inheritance, and it's most often used throughout the Old Testament of the land that God had promised to give to Israel, and the land would guarantee ongoing life and a future. And in a similar sense, children do guarantee that ongoing life and future of both family and nation. And so it's understandable that the word is used here. The word translated children could also mean sons and is often translated that way in, in many English versions. And many translated as sons because of the militaristic connotation of arrows in verse 4 and enemies in verse 5. But I do think it's fair with the ESV and with the King James before that to translate it here as children and to see it more broadly. The man whose quiver is filled with them is pronounced as blessed in verse 5. And at the end of verse 5, What's translated here is he, the footnote in the ESV suggests this as well, is really they, they are not to be put to shame when they speak with their enemies in the gate. And it likely implies that these children or sons will not be ashamed because of their strength in numbers when they go to the gate and, and confront their enemies. The family will be preserved through the, the strength of many when the quiver is full. 
This building of a home in terms of a family is the Lord's gift, the psalm says, the Lord's reward. And I want us to note just how countercultural the view of children in Psalm 127 is to the view of children that we have surrounding us all throughout our culture. It's incredibly countercultural. Often children are seen as more of a, of a curse than a blessing. They can weigh you down, they can drain your life, they can be a burden upon your wallet as well as your time, and they can cause heartache and worry and pain, and therefore we are to avoid them or to minimize them as much as possible. But that's obviously not the biblical perspective. Instead, the biblical perspective is that children are a reward from the Lord, a heritage, an inheritance, and they lead to life and security. And yes, blessed is the man, verse 5, who fills his quiver with them. We can't get legalistic about these things, but we can say with certainty that having children and lots of them is a great blessing from the Lord. And we are to uh, affirm that as the people of God. And it's a great blessing for all kinds of reasons. This is one of God's primary means of discipleship and raising up image bearers is the having of children and the blessing that children are. Having come to this in just the normal course of this series through these psalms, I want to acknowledge that there are some of you here who I know would love to have this blessing, to have children, but who are either not married and want to be, or who are married and struggle with infertility in your marriage, or have experienced even the loss of a child in your life. And you might hear this psalm about the blessing of children and have thoughts of resentment and anger toward God because this good gift has been withheld or perhaps even taken from your life. And I want you to know that that is deeply understandable. And I know that this is a, a genuine source of heartache and sorrow for many, and that these are some of the deepest hurts in our human experience. To those of you who are in that situation this morning, I want you to know that we see you, or we long to see you, and we long to walk with you through that pain, to come alongside and to love and care for you in the midst of that loss. We have a ministry even here at the church that focuses on this experience of infertility, which we would love to connect you with as well. But what I want to say to all of you for whom this is a source of heartache and pain is you are not to conclude from this in your life that the Lord does not want to bless you, to reward you, or that somehow you are being punished by God. To the contrary, under his inscrutable providence, you are partaking in the brokenness of this world in a particular way, as all of us do in our own particular ways. And sometimes we would rather partake of it in the way that our neighbor does rather than the way that God has assigned to us to do. But know deeply as you look upon the cross of Jesus that God's heart is for you, that he loves you, that he cannot love you more, he cannot give you more than he has already given, and his desire is to bless you and to grow you, even through your trials, into his likeness more and more. That is his great grace. I recently spent time with a couple in our community who struggled with infertility for many years, and the woman wrote to me afterwards and said, quote, a main thing that helped me was coming to understand and accept that God wanted me to learn contentment in whatever my circumstances versus being so focused on having a child, end quote. And she found that God was refining her and her husband through this struggle and, 
and even enabling them through the struggle to have a ministry to young people. She wrote, additionally, we were working with a young adult group during that time, and we could see how God was using our experience to help us connect with them and gain their trust. We would share about what we were going through, including pointing out how we needed to learn to trust in God when what he had for us didn't match what we had hoped to have or our desired timing, because many of those young people were wanting God to provide for them a spouse. A beautiful testimony about how God can meet us in our trials in unique ways and actually use us in and through them and grow and deepen our faith in and through them. And if this is a struggle for you this morning, I want to encourage you with her testimony that even as you struggle, God deeply desires to work his life more deeply in you and then to shine through you in that struggle. So in sum, the psalm, the invitation of the psalm invites us to this place of trust, of entrusting our lives to the God of providence whose work matters most and who gives generously to his beloved who is the source of all blessing. The psalm invites us out of anxious and painful toil and into a place of rest and trust in the God of all life. So what would it look like then if we were to take up this invitation in our lives and to move into this disposition and posture of deeper trust more and more? I want to offer a few thoughts about what this might look like in your life and in mine. First, the truth that God's work matters most invites us into deeper prayer. God must do it. God must build the house. God must watch over the city. And so we pray. And prayer is an expression of trust and dependence. A life of prayer is an expression of trust in God and his sovereignty and providence in our lives. And it is an expression of our dependence. Prayer is the mechanism through which we call upon the presence and power of God to be at work more and more in our lives. And this is why we're told in the New Testament, I know it makes all of us feel guilty, to pray without ceasing. Because we desperately need God. We depend upon him for every breath. And so we pray. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. That's Psalm 63 verse 8. And the psalmist in Psalm 63 shows us the picture of what it means to be clinging to God. It is a life of praise and prayer and trust and dependence and petition. All of these things evoke a heart of trust. So we pray. Second, in a more specific way, we would see gratitude which is maybe a more specific subset of what I mean when I say prayer would be a sign of this life of trusting assurance. We would see gratitude when things go well at our homes, our families, or our businesses, or in a particular endeavor, we would stop and give thanks to God for all that he's done. You remember the 10 lepers who were healed by Jesus in Luke chapter 17? And only one was found to go back and acknowledge the source of his healing, who was Jesus. He was a Samaritan too, which made it all the more scandalous. But he understood that everything good in life, in particular his healing experience of genuine life, came from Jesus. And so he comes back to give thanks. Do we understand that the source of the building of our homes, the protection of our neighborhoods, the establishment of our work, the work of our hands, the growing of our families, that anything that comes of these things is all a gift from the Lord himself? And therefore, do we turn and stop and regularly give thanks? thanks to him. This is one of the reasons we should be thankful for the tradition in our culture of thanking God before we eat. I'm sure most of you do that in your life. And as great as that is, because it signifies this reality that everything we have comes from him, I know that for most of us it becomes quite perfunctory, doesn't it? It almost happens subconsciously. We don't really think about it. And so the encouragement here is to stop 
and to give attention to the God of heaven and earth, to pause and to give thanks for what he has done, for how he has built or kept watch in your life. As a family, we have four kids, and as a family, one of the things we've sought to do as they've grown up is to stop and regularly pray together in the normal course of life. It's been one of our chief habits as a family. And a week or two ago, we were doing this just again out of habit, and I got a little resistance from one of my children. Can't imagine that. But from one of my kids about this call to pray together. And my response was to this child was, look, don't you understand that God has given us everything that we enjoy, every breath in our lungs, the strength in our bodies, all that we've enjoyed under our roof today, the meals that we've eaten, everything that we have has been a gift from him. Surely we can stop for a moment as a family and give thanks to him and be attentive to his presence and remember the good things that he has done in our life. Do you stop regularly and give thanks to God for the incredible gifts that he has given to you? We would see this more as we walk into this posture of assurance and trust in him. So there's prayer, there's giving thanks, these signs of this movement into a posture of trust. And then a third one I want to point out is manifest in rest. And we go back to verse 2 for this again, of course, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Because God's work is primary, we don't have to wear ourselves out. The point of verse 2 is to say, look, if God's work is what matters most, then don't run yourself ragged like the world depends on you. But stop and sleep and rest and slow down. Why? Because the one who builds the house and the one who truly watches over the city is the one who calls you beloved and who will give to you without your excessive effort. I wonder, do you know that and do you believe that? Are we eating the bread of anxious toil or are we like those who labor, yes, and are heavy laden, yes, but who have heard the invitation of Jesus to come to me and you will find rest for your souls. I love the Sabbath that God instituted in the Old Testament. Here, God gave Israel a monument in time as the Jewish scholar Abraham Heschel writes, and it's called the Sabbath, a day each week when the people of God were to quite literally shut down the daily operations and machinery that caused the world to go round and round, to shut off the switch and to be attentive to the God who had created them and redeemed them and given them a new identity and new life in him. And they were to enjoy, to marinate in, to rest in all of the gifts of God for a day a week. That's what God intended for his people, to rest and to remember his kingship and lordship over their lives. It was such a gift of his grace that they were to rest. And God wanted them to enjoy this gift so much that he told them this in Exodus 34, 21. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. Now why, is, why am I drawing attention to this? Because what God said to his people, this was an agrarian society. They, they depended on the fruit of the land to have the food that they needed. Can you imagine how hard it would have been to sit down and rest on a beautiful sunny October day when you needed to go out and harvest the fields on which you would depend? Maybe it was going to storm the rest of the week. You'd be so tempted to get out. And God says, no, even in plowing time when you're sowing the fields and when you're harvesting, I want you to rest. It's like telling a CPA to rest in the early weeks of April or telling a student to rest in late December or late May or early May. 
It's not really what you want to do. But God says, no, I want you to rest. I want you to have this gift because I am your provider. I am your savior and your redeemer. I am the one who provides all that you need. And so stop. Cease your work and your labor and rest. And he, he invites us into that. And one of, the, one of the geniuses of the Jewish day is it begins at sundown. So what's the first thing that you do every day? You go to sleep. And it might be helpful for some of us to shift our thinking about that. The day begins at sundown. So what do I start my day with? Rest and sleep, ceasing from activity. Well, who doesn't sleep? The God of heaven and earth, he's working all night long. He's making the crops to grow. He's doing the things that we cannot do, that we depend upon for life. And then when my, when I, maybe you shouldn't use an alarm clock in light of the sermon, but when I wake up in the morning, I join into the labor that God has been doing all night long. Having rested first, I then step into the labors of the day, joining God in that work. It's an incredible gift to enter in having rested, to enter into what God has done. Violation of the Sabbath in the Old Testament was a severe offense to God. And I want to suggest that one of the reasons it's such a severe offense is because Sabbath is meant to indicate that I, God, am your provider, and you trust my people, trust in me. And when they would say, no thanks, I'm not going to take this gift of rest, it was as if they were saying, God, it depends on me and not on you. And I'm going to take matters into my own hand and become independent and self-reliant. And that was something that deeply offended God, who was our benevolent king and father. So there's prayer, there's giving thanks, and there's rest. And I offer these to you as a, a kind of way of doing some assessment in your own life and heart of are those things there because I think to the degree that they are they reflect someone who's understood the invitation of Psalm 127 into rest so consider whether they mark your life the final point that I'd like to make as we come to a close is is actually the the fact that Psalm 127 is found in the middle it's actually the central psalm in the psalms of ascents from 120 to 134 and the house that the pilgrims going to Jerusalem saying this song would think of primarily would have been the temple, the house of God to which they were traveling. The city to which they would have primarily referred this word in Psalm 127.1 would have been Jerusalem, the city of God and his dwelling place. And the sons or the children would likely have been the Davidic dynasty of the kingdom, the king over God's people. And so they would have not only understood this psalm as a personal exhortation and encouragement to a life of trust, but they would have applied it corporately to the people of God and to their great hopes as a nation for God to do great things and to establish his kingdom. And this psalm was a remembrance for them of tapping into God is the one who covers over his people, his temple, his, his city, and his, and his royal throne of David. In fact, this is the only psalm in the Psalms of Ascents that says of Solomon in the superscription at the beginning of the psalm. And some think, scholars think, that perhaps this was because Solomon is actually a negative example of the psalm. Solomon did great work and great labors. He built the house of the Lord and he, in seven years. He built his own house in 13 years. Um, 
But Solomon began to depart from the Lord. Perhaps he's used here as an example of what not to be or to do in that he did not end up trusting in the Lord. But the people of God would have applied this to the broader nation corporately. And as we think about applying this to our own lives and living a life of assurance and trust in God, I want to suggest to you as well that we trust in the Lord to build his church. The temple is no longer found in a particular place in Palestine, but it is you and me, the gathered people of God, where God resides and is present. And unless the Lord watches over that house, we watch over it in vain. We are an advanced foretaste of the heavenly Jerusalem that will come down one day when God returns and God will watch over this city. And we are collected and gathered underneath one great son, the son of God, who is our king. And isn't it amazing that the God who will watch over his church and build his church and guard his city, he talks in this psalm about the gift of giving children or sons to us. But what's amazing is as he went out to do the work of guarding his house and of watching over his city, he actually gave us his son. He offered to us his son as the one perfect and complete sacrifice that would deal with the problem that faced all of us so deeply of sin in order that we might actually enter into his house, into his fellowship, enjoy his presence. God gave his only son that we could enter into this life of assuring, assurance, assurance and trust marked by prayer and gratitude and yes, rest. Because Jesus said on the cross, it's finished. Now you enter into my finished labor and we can be that restful people who bear witness to him throughout our lives as we walk into this invitation to be people who trust him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your gift of your son. Lord, we acknowledge and just confess that we don't rest, that we're often anxious, and that we like to toil as if things depend upon us. We pray that you would invite us again through this psalm to trust in you. We acknowledge that your work matters most, that apart from you, Lord Jesus, we can do nothing. Make us a people of trust, a people who rest. And allow us, we pray, to bear witness to you, the great God of heaven and earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.